This is Criterion Cast Chronicles, Episode 6. Tonight we'll be discussing the July titles from the Criterion Collection, the six films that they released over the last month. I'm Ryan Gallagher. Joining me tonight, I have Scott Nye. Hey, Scott. Howdy. I have Arik Devins. Hey, Arik. Hey, Ryan. And we have David Blakesley. Hey, David. Hello. All right, so back once again, this time talking about the July titles. We just had the July Barnes & Noble sale where everyone had a chance to pick up some of these titles. It was fun seeing, uh, or not fun, I guess. It was sad seeing some of these titles uh, sell out. Uh, you know, pre-ordered before the release date. I'm looking specifically at the New World. I saw a lot of people talking about the fact that they, <laughs> it was hard for them to pick up uh, the New World on release day uh, in a store instead of for, because everyone had either pre-ordered it or put it on hold. I was seeing people complaining about uh, some people putting it on hold in multiple locations, but. Uh, Anyway, yeah, my mine just arrived in the UPS today. I had to go into the store and place the order so that I could still get the deal and use my coupon and, <laughs> and all of that. So my copy just came this afternoon, so I've had a chance to sample it. But uh, that's about as much as I got into it. So yeah, I was I was a little frustrated, uh, like many other people. I go to my local Barnes and Noble, and it's not there. It's like, what are you talking about, man? It just came out. It, there should be eight copies on stock and then i went to the other barnes and noble on the other side of town and that was sold out as well so i i know your plight out there people so it's all about the in-store hold guys <laughs> uh, yeah well I, I i've i've never really run into that problem during these sales usually they at least the stores around my place uh you know they'll usually have at least five or six copies of each new title and i figured the new world would be popular but they really got snapped up or maybe they just didn't order them in sufficient quantities i'm not sure we have some fun titles to talk about tonight i'll be covering the first two releases uh this time around starting off with the in-laws from arthur hiller the 1979 film one of the rare comedies in the criterion collection uh this is a film that has had previous dvd releases which is where the commentary track comes from uh on the film you know, it's fun going through this just because I hadn't seen the film before. And so, uh, but it is kind of a beloved comedy that everyone, um, at least, you know, where I was reading when these new releases went up, uh, people were talking about how, you know, this is like a, a, a comedy nerds classic. Peter Falk and Alan Arkin play these two uh, parents of uh, of kids who are about to be married. And so it's kind of like, you know, meet the parents, essentially. But this uh, Peter Falk plays this kind of mysterious, uh, crazy old, uh, you know, maybe he's a CIA agent. Maybe he's just uh, a criminal. Maybe he's just, um, you know, a little crazy on top of everything else. And then Alan Arkin is the kind of straight-laced dentist who doesn't really want his uh, daughter to marry uh, Peter Fox's son. And they go on some wacky adventures, ending up in South America. Uh, it is very, very funny. Now, this movie has uh, some interviews, new interviews with Alan Arkin. And uh, I think the, the Criterion Collection, I was I was trying to think of like, you know, are there any other comedies like this in the collection? Just because so much of the other stuff that we get uh, from Criterion is kind of like the more like intellectual, maybe not intellectual, but like, you know, we get Chaplin, Harold Lloyd, Jacques Tati, these films that require like, or or maybe even like have this more like reverence towards them. You have to maybe think more when you're watching them, or at least like they, they almost 
want you to think more, I guess. And when you watch something like the in-laws, it's like, it's much more like jokes and, um, kind of physical comedy, but not in the way that there is with Harold Lloyd or, or Chaplin. And, uh, it's just a different kind of comedy. I think that we don't get a lot of, if any, in the Criterion Collection. But do you think it's close at all to like Preston Sturges? Um, what you're saying about it kind of reminds me of him. Yeah, I guess it is more in that line uh, of comedies. And but like it just feels like something that the Criterion Collection hasn't really gone into this area of modern film. You know, uh, with many of their other releases. It kind of reminded me of a fairly obscure DVD only title, Hopscotch, with Walter Matthau, oh, yeah. and yeah, it was that's a. a good one. Ronald Neem was the director, and it was kind of like a little bit of a globe-trotting spy comedy type thing, uh, and also kind of from that same era, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Tootsie maybe, you know, from a sort of that you know, early '80s comedy, but kind of a different different vibe to that film as well. But you're right; it's kind of a it's kind of a unique direction for Criterion to be moving into, um, you know. It, it, I, I was pretty surprised to see this one. I, I remember it coming out. I probably saw it originally. It didn't make a huge impression on me, but yeah, it's 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 a it's it's kind of a cool, you know, branch. Uh, there's some opening of some new possibilities that Criterion might explore this this vein a little bit more. Um, I guess also like it's a mad 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 world might fit into this kind of style of comedy in the collection that people wouldn't necessarily associate with films in the collection um this one is is kind of like a part of the warner brothers deal that they've been working with and so this one was a warner brothers dvd uh, once upon a time and that's where the commentary track comes from um i yeah i really enjoyed it um arik or scott did either of you guys have a chance to see this or have you seen it already before I have not and did not. Uh, yeah, I didn't get to either. Is the would you describe the comedy as similar to It's a Mad 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 World? Because I I don't enjoy that movie at all. Uh, I mean, I think it's funnier than than Mad World. Um, there are a lot of like iconic jokes that uh, that they still laugh at. You know, like one of the big jokes is where they're uh, where they have to run like serpentine uh, between uh, a car and uh, this body, and they're getting shot at. And uh, there's a big joke, and like you know, the 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 writer, the critic, um, the writer, I think, who wrote the essay for the film for the release, he like breaks down that joke uh, in the essay, and he was saying, you know, I had to watch this this scene five times uh, just to you know go th- in writing this paragraph, and uh, it still holds up, and I think it uh, it's very funny, and it's something that like for people who have seen the movie. It's just like consistently a joke that everyone brings up. You know, when I was talking to Brian on Off the Shelf or, like, you know, I talked to people at work about this movie, like Serpentine is just, you just say that line and uh, people know, or, you know, you say the in-laws and people just will say, yo, Serpentine. It's a little bit grittier humor. I mean, it's, you know, Mad Mad World has a lot of cornball stuff in it. This is a little bit more, I don't know, kind of a little bit of a saucier attitude. I mean, so it's, it's late 70s, so the language is a little bit rougher and there's a little bit more i don't know just grit to it or something if that makes any sense but a little less mugging perhaps which would be good. oh oh yeah yeah it's not not nearly uh, look at me i'm mr funny man you know yeah. what you see just Ugh. all all throughout <laughs> i really <laughs> hate that movie but yeah okay. i'm excited to watch this <laughs> yeah. one yeah now peter falk is great alan arkin is great plus all of the the smaller cameos from people like um 
James Wong and Ed Bagley Jr. Uh, or James Hong, not James Wong. James Hong, uh, Ed Bagley Jr., and a number of other people. Um, who is I forget who the uh, the guy who plays the um, the South America the South American dictator. Um, he died recently, and uh, I don't have it in front of me right here. But um, he's oh Richard Libertini. Uh, he's he's hilarious. He does this whole like little puppet thing with his hand. Anyway, it's it's not much fun for me to like describe jokes in a, in a movie, <laughs> but uh, you can trust me that I laughed uh, a lot while watching this one. Yeah, yeah, this is an emphasis on entertainment more than you know cinematic, a tourist type of stuff. It's it's just a very entertaining, funny film. Uh, I I didn't really look at any of the supplements. I mean, I don't know. There's there is there anything on the whatever artistic aesthetic side. I mean, I'm not even familiar with Arthur Hiller as a name director, but uh, you know this it was you know, this is beyond. It's not just a nostalgia thing. It's it's just kind of a a showcase for a, a a funny movie that a lot of people enjoy that might otherwise be overlooked. So I think Criterion just kind of you know introducing it to a new audience this way. So the following week on on July twelfth, we got a, a Blu-ray upgrade, a reissue of Carnival of Souls, the Herc Harvey film from nineteen sixty-two. This is one that James and I covered on the podcast back in twenty eleven. Uh, we were doing like a genre month of of films in October that and of that year, and um, the old DVD, uh, which we had long hoped would get a uh, a Blu-ray upgrade down the line finally here this one um a little contentious in that they while including new supplements uh on the blu-ray they did take out a few things including the director's cut of the film which uh the, the reason for not including the director's cut of the film was just that uh apparently it was originally only done on videotape and that's how it was transferred onto the the dvd initially and so there's no high definition version of the director's cut anywhere or at least like it's not you know on film that they could transfer uh into a higher resolution they also cut out a few other things like i think some uh some some short films as well as like some text uh supplements that were included on that old dvd um but I and so I think some people have been hanging on to that original one, or even going out and buying the original one during the Barnes and Noble sale. I saw a lot of people uh, on the Facebook group and on just online in general saying that they wanted to have both versions, uh, just because this one that one was kind of getting now replaced uh, with this new this new issue of it. You know, the film is kind of like a little Twilight Zone episode of a woman who survives a car crash uh, and then is haunted by this kind of spooky character played by the director, uh, Herc Harvey, and um, a lot of kind of moody, uh, kind of dark, haunting sequences of, um, you know, ghostly images and whatnot. Um, I, I think it still holds up incredibly well. The Blu-ray looks great, this new transfer. Um you know, looks gorgeous, I think. And, uh, including new cover art, uh, by, um, Edward Kinsella, who has done a number of other, or at least a couple of other Criterion Collection covers. Um, you know, I think for anyone out there who's, you know, interested in picking up the new release, uh, you sure, you certainly should. And then, you know, don't necessarily get rid of your, your old DVD, uh, 
if you're concerned at all with getting, you know, like having a definitive version of the film. Um, but I don't think the the director's cut is necessarily that much better. I mean, it includes longer longer takes of some sequences, as well as like a few other shots, which are included in this release. But they're mostly just as uh, you know, you have you can go watch those deleted scenes or watch some of the outtakes, which show some uh, some of the material that was included in the director's cut. So um, I don't think they you know, drop the ball on this upgrade at all. I think they just had to make a decision as far as what they were going to include, if they're going to put new supplements in. And I, I think the stuff that they cut out, you know, doesn't really, um, you know, ruin this. I don't recall the director's cut having anything like, it's not really a different experience of the film. You yeah, know, it's, been, yeah. it's been years since I've watched both versions. And when I reviewed it, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I watched both, but it, it, there's nothing palpable there. So... You know, if you want to get the extra, the old version, that that's nice. If or if you have it, I'm certainly not going to be getting rid of mine. But uh, I think this is a pretty good definitive edition of Carnival of Souls. I do still like that old cover for the DVD, even though it's, yeah. you know, uh, I, I I just like the the painting, the, you know, the the image of the, the the you know the the ghoul, like the the ghouls in the background. Um, well, that was original poster art, right? Think, or or at least so. an adaptation of, of an early poster. Because you can find, if you do the Google search, you'll see you know old posters with all the credits and everything of that same image. And yeah, Candace Hillegas is definitely gussied up a little bit. I mean, she never really looks in the movie like she looks right, like on yeah. the cover. <laughs> but uh, it's, it's that's kind of a nice little bit of schlocky marketing there. Just a little little throwback style which uh you know i think you know the, the new cover is certainly more in keeping with the aesthetic of the film but i'm not sure it's quite as flattering as as uh can to candace hillegas even though she's quite striking in this film for sure absolutely i might be on a i might be on a uh, island by myself but I, I i actually strongly prefer this new cover um especially now that i've seen the film so this was my first time watching it uh and first of all it's awesome like I love uh, sort of old horror in general, but this is really great. I mean, it's it 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 honestly is still pretty spooky. Like I, you know, I watched it right before I went to bed that night, and I had to get up to go to the bathroom. I didn't want to look in the mirror. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but but I think the 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 cover it, it really captures that kind of. I mean, yes, not super flattering to the actress, but ca- captures the feeling of her kind of performance in a really interesting way. Um, not to mention the fact that it has that really striking version of the Saltaire, you know, the Mormon dance center or whatever it was in, in the background, um, which I think is cool. But yeah, just a, a really fun movie. And it's one of those ones where it's you know, pretty short, right? It's like 78 minutes or something. But mm-hmm. I, you don't, I, I didn't obviously I haven't seen the director's cut, but I don't really want there to be any more of it. I mean, even to be honest with you, even the second uh the second sequence where she's, I don't know, I guess maybe dreaming where she, no one can see her. It was even a little bit long, but, um, but I, I really enjoyed it. And it's, it's the music especially. And so one of the nice things, of course, about the Blu-ray upgrade is we get the uncompressed monorial uh, soundtrack. Right. And uh, it's, it, it, this movie has like such strikingly interesting music with the, with all the organ playing. that I thought it worked really, really, really well. I just absolutely loved it. If you, if for whatever reason you like me had not seen this movie, you should, definitely grab this one it's great oh you know one thing i forgot to mention on the in-laws is that uh we got a booklet in that release uh <laughs> watch out with carnival of souls it's now one of the kind of poster uh 
essay things that they do now, like the the inserts that fold out as a poster on one side, and the essay and all the credits and everything are on the other side. Um, I like I really like the image that they put on that poster, but it's you know, with any of these, they're not things that I'm going to actually put up or you know frame and put them up on the wall because I still want to have access to that information on the other side. Uh, so, but it is a nice you know spooky image on there. But yeah, very exciting that we got a you know, two booklets this month in the, in the new world and the in-laws. So arbitrary, which, what they choose to do booklets for, isn't it? Well, I don't know. I mean, I guess like it, de- it must just depend on how long the essays are or how many essays they want to include, uh, in mm. the release, just because mm-hmm. that one, you know, like the, the in-laws booklet has this essay, um, written in 2011 by Arthur Hiller on directing the in-laws as well as the essay, uh, by Steven Weiner about, you know, the, the comedy, uh, in the film. Um, and with the, with the Carnival of Souls, it's just like the, let's see, the essay by Kier La Janice, and then, you know, the credits for the, for the, for the disc. So a little disappointing still, but, uh, you know, it's still, it's more readable, I guess, than, you know, that, that insert that we got last month for Fantastic Planet that I really didn't like. <laughs> I think you can say there's probably a rough correlation that there are more commercial titles probably generally get more uh, an increased chance of having a nice little booklet just because they figure they'll recoup the cost there. I mean, it's it's not perhaps one for one. I think Fantastic Planet might have done pretty well. But uh, yeah, some of these films that just have a little bit more of a broad base you know, the kind of things that they might release at Costco or whatever, um, you know, a booklet might seem to be a little bit more uh, apropos or a little bit more feasible uh, in their marketing scheme. I don't know. I feel like Carnival of Souls is a bigger release than the in-laws, to be honest with you. I see. I think like the in-laws is going to be one that they'll put at Costco and will probably sell because people will, you know, remember it. Whereas Carnival of Souls, Uh. I think won't be necessary. It might be like a tougher sell at a place like that. Well, they do have the dollar editions right next to it, probably, of Carnival of Souls, because it it's a public domain title, right? Right. Well, yeah, that's a funny story, I guess, like just how it ended up, you know, they, they didn't include a copyright uh, notice in one of the releases, and so yeah. it ended up in the public domain, but... I think it's the original release. I think it was never not in the public domain. Yeah. Oh, right, exactly. And then, but then it was in, they included a copyright, I think, in Europe. Yeah. Well, and then and Herc Harvey. I mean, his story. I mean, he's got a, he made industrial films and mm-hmm. just kind of yeah. You know, he he was a a really you know stock filmmaker. He just kind of took jobs, but he had this kind of ambition. That's, an, that's another you know kind of making of story behind the scenes that you know again I didn't get into supplements on this one, but that's really pretty well laid out in the original DVD version of who is this Herc Harvey guy and where did he come from and how did he uh, you know, put this project together because this really was kind of his one shot, and I guess he, you know, he he kind of had a, uh, a pretty good career uh, going to horror festivals and conventions and things, and kind of, you know, living off the very very well justified you know fame and reputation of this film. But you definitely get a flavor of that from the DVD. Is that is, did that stuff come over into the supplements on this new one too? Yeah, there's 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 a you know. Uh, the, the like the movie that wouldn't die the documentary about the film and they you know they they talk about his history in there um and then david karen's talks about it uh, in his in his essay a little bit um and then there's excerpts from the movies okay uh 
yeah, I mean, that information I think is still brought through. I forget which of the things they cut out uh, from the DVD release, but that stuff is here too. Yeah, some of his industrial training films or something like that that might might have been deleted, but nope, they're, they're still there. Oh, okay, yeah. well, that's good. Uh-huh. Good. Yeah, this is the only movie he ever made. Yeah, the only feature length feature movie. It's crazy. Very exciting that we got this on Blu-ray. This is one that you know we we talked about on Blu-ray upgrade wish list episodes for a couple of years, uh, hoping that this one would get a release. And now we have a much better version uh, to watch than the that DVD one. Most dangerous game. You're next. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, fingers crossed on that one. All right, so we are going to move now to the 19th, the following week, where we got three different releases. Um, first up, King Who's A Touch of Zen. Arik, you had a chance to watch this film uh, for us this time around. What did you think? Yeah, uh, I loved this film so much. I mean, it, it was the minute that uh, it was announced, I knew I wanted to, I couldn't wait to, to get it in my hands. I love uh the movies that were sort of inspired by this much much later like um crashing tiger hidden dragon or hero house of flying daggers and in general the wuxia uh genre is just um something i i enjoy a lot uh and so i was so excited for this one and it does not disappoint it took me a second to sort of readjust my my expectations because it is a film from 1971 not from like 2001 but um once i did I, i found just a wonderful wonderful film so it's it's a very long movie. Uh, I should say that at the outset. It's like three hours long. It was originally divided up into two films uh, in Taiwan when it came out. But so it was um, the second, uh, sorry, the third film made by the director King Hu. And uh, and it, with the first and second films in this one that he made, he kind of uh, established the genre of modern wuxia. Um, you know, the, the concept of wuxia goes back significantly further, but the sort of modern idea of like a strong female protagonist and martial arts with the some of the wire work and the trampolines and stuff like that that kind of all starts with with him um it's a it it tells it's based on a it's very loosely based on a a short story um about a a, um, fort that might be inhabited by ghosts but the movie basically tells the story of a of a young woman who whose father is accused by corrupt government officials of treason. And she's sort of on the run with some generals and she ends up in this small town and, and sort of the bad guys are coming to get her. And she sort of accidentally befriends a um, sort of erstwhile scholar painter guy. And together they kind of join forces to some degree and and, and do some cool stuff. So um, yeah, the movie uh, looks gorgeous. Some people, I, there's like the blu-ray.com review was not particularly favorable towards the visuals and i really think he kind of missed the boat on this one there's some weirdness i think it has to do with the lenses that king who was using at the time that can't but i'm pretty sure that was in the original release so i I don't know i didn't see any of the sort of controversy that people are talking about online i thought it looked great um and then the, the 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 package is pretty loaded with special features there's Interviews with um, both the main uh, male actor and the main female actor. Modern interviews, new ones by Criterion. There's a new interview with Ang Lee where he kind of talks about the um, influences uh, that this film and the director had on him. There's a phenomenal uh, Tony Raines piece where he does his usual thing of like telling you every possible thing you can't believe he knows um, and and uh, kind of sets up why King Hu is such an important director and how he kind of pushed uh, Chinese cinema forward um and then there's a there's a, a doc an older documentary um that was eh, just kind of standard i would say uh and not particularly in good um visual quality uh where he, a lot of collaborators were interviewed and 
and, and, and stuff like that. Um, this is, I, I mean, really, seriously, such a wonderful film. And then uh, in a lot of the supplements, they sort of hint at uh, a Dragon Inn, sort of the companion piece-ish to this. And now I'm like, I, I was surprised they didn't release it at the same time. And now I just like cannot wait for that one to come out. So uh, did anyone else uh, watch this? Uh, I didn't pick up the Criterion edition, but I reviewed it when it came out of Masters Cinema, which, to my understanding, is exactly the same transfer and restoration and all that. And DVD versus is virtually identical. So I, I feel uh, safe in saying and backing up and saying that's a gorgeous res- restoration. Um, <laughs> I, I will say that, uh, yeah, I was also caught off guard by it in terms of the wuxia genre, in part because I don't usually get into those kind of films too much. I don't. I couldn't even really completely get with Dragon Inn. I'll be interested to hear what you think when that comes out. Uh, but it, in part, this took me off guard because the plot you mentioned doesn't even start until like an hour into this movie. Yeah, it's so um, true. <laughs> which is not to say that nothing happens. There's a lot happening and there's a lot of suspense. He kind of builds around the scholar kind of discovering the plot that he's about to be dropped into. Um, and I was just so captivated with it so instantly. And that first hour just flew by. So by the time that the first fight comes up, I was like, how long has it been that we've been waiting for this first fight? And I didn't even notice the time go by but yeah i mean i wrote an extremely ecstatic review of it that probably didn't make a whole lot of sense but i'm still (laughs) just kind of completely floored by this movie and as much as i know everyone's excited for the new world and i am hardly one to fault them for this i kind of think this is the essential release of the month and i I really cannot urge people in the strongest enough terms to pick it up it's really one of the best films i've ever seen and i don't say that often about films i've just seen but i was so completely knocked out by this yeah, and for a three-hour film, I mean, I think you kind of touched on this. It flies by. I mean, it really does not feel without long. feeling like aggressively paced or anything. You know, it right, definitely totally. takes its time, but there's so much going on, and it's so I don't know. It's just so captivating, so immediately. The Masters of Cinema release had a few different supplements, and that one was a limited version that they released and is now out of print. That one does include a commentary track, or at least a select scene commentary track by Tony Raines uh, on this one, whereas the Criterion release, he just does an interview. Um, but I think you get a lot of the same information from that interview that he talks about in the, the commentary. Eric or whoever, uh, you know, I, I have only dipped my toe into this film as well, just haven't had a lot of time to watch it. But I did I did put the early scenes on, and there was, uh, I saw kind of a halo, like I don't know if it was like a sunrise or something or some other light source, but there was a, kind of a circle of light around it but i could see that it was kind of oval shaped so is that is that what you were kind of getting at with the uh the lens issues or something because i was like oh is no the aspect ratio on correct on that or what i mean no there's times oh, when okay. um when when panning happens where it looks sort of like a fisheye lens like a skateboarding video right. oh um, yeah i saw a little bit of that on some of the yeah. opening landscape like you could sort of see this little morphing type of thing but that didn't bother me but but i did have a, an immediate question like why is that more of an egg shape than a round circle there but yeah no i think i think he used apparently whatever widescreen anamorphic lenses he or maybe they weren't anamorphic whatever lenses he Mm -hmm. was using kind of give it almost a uh, if anyone's seen the golden age of television that like kinematic kinemascope kind of look it's like you can kind of feel the lens moving as it it's kind of hard Mm -hmm. to describe Mm -hmm. but i don't find it upsetting at all and you know the, the film is is paced in as scott said in interesting ways and there's a lot of like interesting cuts and so it just kind of ends up feeling a little bit like um, to my mind, like uh, what's his name, uh, J- uh, the Jay Abrams uh, obsession with lens flares or whatever. It's like you know, just a just kind of a stylistic choice that King Who made that I I just kind of immediately accepted and and didn't really care much because everything's. I mean, it is, it is also just a beautiful film. I mean, they they 
they filmed um, on a. It took them like three years to film this film, this movie, and they were just kind of wandering around, mostly in Taiwan, a little bit in Hong Kong, and just just filming kind of this natural beauty. And it just, it, it's such a varied set of landscapes, and and so unbelievably gorgeously shot. Yeah, I definitely. I, I jumped around just a few scenes just to kind of get a feel and a flavor. And some of the some of those natural settings were pretty amazing. Like what what a what a unique environment and what a you know what a mood and uh, atmosphere it set. So yeah, I, I definitely look forward to setting three hours aside and and uh, settling into this one. I, think, I would highly recommend it. So what uh, Arik was referring to as far as like the disappointment on the Blu-ray.com review, Doctor Svet was talking about the color grading. I think was was one of his problems with the film. Um, which was, you know, and like you guys said, it's the, it's the same release or it's the same transfer on the Masters of Cinema disc. Um, but he was just saying that there's like color grading issues and like inconsistent appearances that uh, that occur because of uh, the way that the colors are, are graded in here. And he felt that some felt more flat than others. And so um, that was his problem with it. But and, and like in this one, he. I don't know if it's like a joke or what, but he says that his score is like 3.25 out of five, which is, and I saw some people on the Criterion forum kind of teasing him for going to like a second decimal point <laughs> for, for this grading. Cause it's so, you know, uh, yes, Dr. Svet is finely calibrated. I guess I'll just say, <laughs> I will say the only thing like that I noticed was that some of the blacks don't feel completely pitch black but i don't think that's i think that's just a function of the film and what era it was and what film stock they were using and things like that i, I just yeah. didn't see what he was doing. i appreciate that in the high definition transfer because it's easier for compression reasons to just make anything that's supposed to be black all the way black when that's not always kind of true to the just even just technological limitations at the time regardless of whether or not it's you know author intent you know you, you got to represent the film as it is and i think a lot of those color issues and the black levels and stuff just are the film for better or worse and you know i mean it's still a gorgeous film i if anyone's getting too upset about the color issues yeah that's their own business i guess (laughs) you're kind of missing the point there though yeah at that point the poster art the the cover we got a chance to yeah very beautiful uh done by greg ruth this one was uh one of the like you know the rare instances where we get kind of uh, a little tease or glimpse from the artist, the cover artist themselves as they're working on it. Like they, you know, he showed off some process stuff on Twitter and, and online. He would you know, work on Instagram. He would post shots of like his pencil sketches as he was slowly working on these ones. And um, so he did the, the artwork for Touch of Zen. He also did a poster for Dragon Inn, which both of which are available through the Criterion's website. And um, they're both great. Of them also in your house. Uh, I do have both of them in my house. Uh, I bought them directly from the artist when he sold. He had them up for sale on his own website before they put them up at the Criterion site. Um, so I ordered them. They're still rolled up in a. Actually, no, they're probably like in a in my little flat file thing of of unframed uh, posters that I have uh, hidden away in my house. But uh, I will definitely put them up at some point. And they're you know a beautiful pair of of images. I, t- I also was very surprised that they didn't do these in the same month um, and that they still haven't announced Dragon Inn all these months later. I mean, maybe they're just waiting to 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 do more supplement work, perhaps, for it. I mean, Masters of Cinema released, I think, Dragon Inn first and then did Touch of Zen later. Um, 
which makes more sense because it came out before Dungeons Zen. Right. Um, and it's just, I, I mean, you know, I can see why they didn't want to make it a box set, but um, I wonder if later when they do release it, if it will be available as like a two pack, you know, in a, in a, in a slip case. I'm just hoping that they actually release it because it is a little weird and a lot of the supplements, I don't know, some of them felt like maybe they were cutting out the parts that were more focused on Dragon Inn, so maybe it's like other parts of the same interviews, but it is a little bit of an overlap because they do talk about Dragon Inn quite a bit and I don't know, I'm, I'm just, because this one is a little more well-known, you know, it won the award at Cannes and because it came after, I don't know, I'm a little nervous, but hopefully we're just going to be waiting, so that's fine. Um, I think these both played... Or at least I think Touch of Zen they showed at the this new restoration off at like the Can Classics line a couple of years ago maybe, um, so yeah this one I think I think we first maybe learned that it was coming to Criterion when it showed at the New York Film Festival last year I think that was when we first learned that Janice had picked up the rights to it, or maybe it was Toronto before that, um, but yeah this is one that's been kind of has been. Uh, a long time coming in that it's you know, been like a year or so of, of of teases leading up to this final release. And it's now one of, what, like six Chinese films in the collection? Small Club. Yeah. Um, I wonder, so are there other King Who films besides Dragon Inn that, um, that have been restored or that, you know, Criterion might, uh, you know, want to release themselves? Well, the issue mainly is uh, on an ownership situation, uh, those two films were both made for the film company Union Films in Taiwan. The most logical other film to release would be his, um, it wasn't his first film, but his first wuxia film, which is called Come Drink With Me. And, oh, yeah. Um, and that, but that one was through Shaw Brothers. So I don't know who has the rights to that one or how that's kind of gone out. Uh, after that, he actually made, um, he made like two more wuxia films in the 70s, and then he didn't make another film until like the 90s. So there are, um, there's a two two movies that kind of maybe could make a, a box set they're um they have similar titles and i think they're related in some fashion and they and they star a lot of the same people as these films they're not as highly regarded but they're apparently quite good but i think uh, come drink with me would be the obvious one but again i don't know about the rights oh yeah so maybe that's like a miramax or like the weinsteins uh might have the rights there was the dragon because they've they've done other shaw brothers stuff uh and like the dragon dynasty line i think um, is connected with them. I might be getting these mixed up, but um, yeah, that might make it harder for Criterion to do it. All right, well, let's move on to our next title of the month. Scott is going to be talking about the Ellen Renee film Night and Fog. For those who don't know, it is somehow don't know, it's a half hour documentary about made on the 10th anniversary of the liberation of the concentration camps in Nazi Germany that kind of documents. Uh, the overarching uh, story of the Holocaust and kind of the legacy it's left and uh, the worries about the fact that these kind of things can and do repeat themselves. Um, So I've been a little uneasy about this release since it was announced, to be honest. Alain René is one of my absolute favorite directors, and I was kind of initially intent on acquiring all his films on Blu-ray as they're released, at least in the English-friendly versions. Uh, but, you know, this is Night and Fog and approaching it with the same sort of enthusiasm that we do, like pretty much any other home video release somehow feels like morally wrong. I don't know if that seems uh, overreaching of me, but in reading, you know, reviews of the disc that mentioned the, the color tone or the grain density or the contrast for a film that has actual documentary footage of the Holocaust, um, you know, it's it's strange and it feels a little odd. But 
um, that definitely extends to my own reaction watching it. You know, I'd only known the film. I haven't seen it in a theater or anywhere else. I only knew the kind of previous DVD version, and I couldn't help watching this new restoration by some being kind of similarly jolted by the presentation, the strength of the colors and the depth and all those kind of objective measurements. And of course I was uh, all the more horrified by it and left speechless uh, all over again. Um, And part of that is just, you know, getting older and having greater capacity for seeing these things, you know, when you, and for people in my generation, I think we kind of grew up with the Holocaust being a historical event and, not kind of removed from the human drama of it. And it was even kind of a film genre by the time I, you know, became even a teenager. Um, so it's important, I think, that the that this film be restored every time there's a new format to restore it to and keep it alive and well. And if we can see more detail in that footage as a result of these new restoration formats, that is all the better then. Um, which brings up the issue of the cost of the disc, which has been kind of debated in various uh enthusiast forums and uh ryan i'm glad you talked about this on off the shelf i think last week um because i I think by any you know objective measurement even by the standards criterion is used an srp of 40 dollars for a half hour film seems kind of ridiculous um but i i think that kind of puts it into consumerist uh landscape and i'm as guilty of this thought process as anyone else and it's not like i paid full price for it either so maybe who am i to say but uh I, I think uh, the the impact of the film is really what we should be grading in terms of whether or not it's worth it. And this is, you know, one of the most important and, and incredibly impactful, incredibly emotional experience of a movie that really, um, I, I, th- I think if you're going to have to charge for a movie like this, which in some ways maybe should be made for free, made available for free, then I think uh, $40 is as good a price as ever. And I think uh, the Criterion really put a great deal of effort into it. And I really like what they assembled as far as they have the interview with Joshua Oppenheimer. Uh, they have a good essay by Colin McCabe that accompanies it. Um, they have that long feature that accompanies it that I have not watched all the way through, but which seems incredibly thoughtful and incredibly uh, valuable and considering it further. And yeah, this is, you know, this is an incredible film. It, if they wanted to throw in a couple extra early on along Renee shorts, I certainly wouldn't have complained, but uh, the addition we got is extremely good. And I'm very happy to add it to my little Renee shelf. Did anyone else get a chance to check it out? Yeah. So uh, I, I, I've written about this a, a little bit on my site before, but I don't know how much I've spoken about it. But um, um, while I agree with you, Scott, that for many people in uh, uh, our generation, the, the Holocaust is something that's fairly removed and, and historical. It's not um, at all for me uh, because um, my uh, grandfather was um a prisoner in Dachau and um and escaped and his parents were actually sent to Maidenek which is one of the camps that was shown in the in the film oh wow um, yeah and uh where they were uh, murdered so um and my grandmother as well lived through the holocaust and so i, I just have a, a ton of um family history uh with this stuff and so um for me this is uh, very much a an ongoing sort of personal thing, uh, throughout my life. And, um, in addition to that, uh, my girlfriend, uh, was born and raised in Germany. She is uh, German and, uh, I watched it with her and, um, uh, you know, when you grow up in Germany, uh, 
they they spend a lot of time teaching you about the Holocaust in, in order to prevent that sort of thing from happening again, which I think is super important. But um, one of the things she told me after we watched it was that um, they don't, they shield you from some of the worst images. So while she had seen a lot of this kind of stuff before, the, um, and it's not fun to watch, obviously, at all, but the very graphic imagery of, of, of all of the um, people who are dying or dead that is in the film um, really smacked her in the face um, and was something she hadn't really uh, seen before. And I thought that um, her comment, you know, this was obviously a very unpleasant, um, you know, film for her to watch. But she said afterwards uh, that while she obviously did not enjoy it, it's not a film you enjoy watching, that she was um, so happy that uh, that we had watched it and that she thought that uh, everyone everywhere should be forced uh, to watch it. And I think that um, I, I don't think you can really say it better than that. Um, there have been any number of uh, genocides uh, in the history of this planet, and uh, it's not really a good idea or very helpful to sort of compare them to each other. But any uh, way that we have to show people the um, uh, the depths of, of 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 destruction that humanity can bring upon each other, and to kind of put that in people's consciousness so that they sort of do recognize the, the warning signs and and go in other directions and things like that. And just as an educational piece, I think it, I think it, it should be seen by everyone. And I would agree with you, Scott, that um, it probably should be free. But I, you know, I don't really care about the price uh, point uh, argument. But but yeah, I think it, it just is something that everyone should just see. And um, it and you know at thirty two minutes, I mean like I, I can't ask everyone to watch Showa, right? It's like nine and a half hours long. Um, but you can watch this, and I think you should, uh, even though you probably won't enjoy it. It's interesting to have, I mean, to have both Shoah and Night and Fog in the collection and have them be kind of these two different styles of documenting the Holocaust. One is like, you know, like you said, nine hours long, just, but, you know, just primarily interviews um, with survivors and, and, uh, if, and kind of like documenting this story uh, from a totally different way of doing it. Whereas this one, like you said, like we, like we've said is, you know, features a lot of, um, real footage from the camps. And, um, I mean, I, we don't need to, to, to dwell too much on that, on that price point issue. It was, I mean, it, but it is certainly something that people have talked about, you know, in the community, like as far as, you know, this one was once upon a time, like a, one of the cheapest DVDs that Criterion offered at like a $15 MSRP, um, just because it was pretty much just the 32 minute film. And now that they've gone in and added more supplements to it, um, you know, I, I don't think people should, uh, and like I said, you know, like Scott referred to, like I said before, like we shouldn't, we should stop looking at these, uh, you know, works of art as, you know, like how much, how much am I getting for my dollar? Uh, I mean, that kind of comes maybe from just our, I mean, Criterion, you know, tries to pack as much stuff as they can. And so sometimes it feels like we're, you know, we're, we're, we're running away with like the bargain of, uh, you know, like the deal of the century with some of these discs that include, you know, like three cuts of a film and all these hours and hours of supplements. Um, but you know, we shouldn't just expect that from everything. And we don't really need that from everything. Like you can, you can get so much out of this 32 minutes that you might not get out of, you know, a couple hours of a just standard documentary that about the Holocaust. Yeah. I, uh, one thing I wanted to mention about what you said too, is, um, in terms of Shoah and Night and Fog also being in the collection is that if you, if you, there's a lot of Holocaust museums around the world. And if you go to them, they have very different purposes. Um, some are more, uh, historical in nature, educational in nature. Yad Vashem in Israel is basically just designed to make you feel really sad, right? To kind of 
put the weight on you. And I think that this documentary is more in that vein of like just just attempting to make you feel kind of the weight of what happened. I mean, for one thing, it famously doesn't really talk about um, Jewish people at all, right? There's yeah. shots of people with um, the the stars that they were forced to wear, but it's not really focused on that aspect. Um, and I've seen different explanations as to why, but I think it really doesn't need it because it's just about just kind of making you feel the reality of it in a way. Well, it, it poses the questions of, of you know, kind of how did this society get to this point and how was this mechanized operation of, of you know, mass death on this efficiency scale ever even, you know, considered or, or fathomed as a possibility and how did it become an ordinary function of, of business and government and society and just the a horrific ordinariness of it. I mean, even these opening shots where you see these, you know, green pastures and blue skies and it just, you know, kind of tracks over past barbed wire. And, and it, 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 the gravity of this film, I mean, if you want to measure minutes for dollars, I mean, these are minutes that can actually change your life and enhance your consciousness or your conscience in ways that, uh, you know, <laughs> much longer movies may never touch you in this level. So, you know, I think just the fact that we're, you know, supporting a company that's willing to uh, present this really essential document of, of, you know, world history and make it accessible. Um, I mean, I just watched it this afternoon uh, with my dad and it's just, yeah, this kind of stunning silence that you just have to kind of, you know, absorb it and then get on with your life. But you, you do so recognizing that, you know, this, this world and, and humanity just has these, you know, horrendous capacities. And, and we really do have to diligently um, state our intentions and, and act on an ethical basis to say, you know, never again um, on any level, you know, so. I, I really value this. I mean, it, it does kind of put some of the more, you know, entertainment-based uh, films that, that, you know, we love and enjoy and, and love to talk about in perspective. This kind of is stone-cold reality. Uh, this really happened, and, and a film like this just brings it into focus in a way that even reading a book maybe quite can't get to get to you. So let's move on now to uh, another Alain Rene film, Muriel. Well, yeah, I know. And I, I kind of asked to review this one. I didn't really know anything about it. I had never seen it before, but I really enjoyed the other Alan Rene films, obviously Night and Fog. Um, we've just discussed that one, but also Hiroshima Monomur and uh, Last Year at Marienbad. Uh, th these are two films that really made a pretty striking impression on me. And even though I can't quite probably match Scott's enthusiasm for Alan Rene because I just haven't really seen any of his other later work. Uh, what he what he has done or what I've seen of what he's done really intrigued me. So so I was pretty eager to get into Muriel and I, I definitely, you know, there's a lot to appreciate and admire and respect. I feel like I'm still kind of making my acquaintances with this film. So even though I definitely give it a thumbs up and say, yeah, this is a this is a very worthy addition to Criterion and one that um, I, I'm really glad to have seen it's. It's not a film that immediately grabbed me, or or it didn't. It didn't create the same instant sense of 
you know, kind of awe and uh, and just kind of being blown away like I did get from, well, really from the, those three films all on different levels. Yeah, Hiroshima Monomore had this really deep emotional resonance. Uh, last year at Marion Bad is kind of like this dreamy kind of mind-bending experience. Uh, very... You know, very refined aesthetic sensibility and, and just this really, you know, kind of delirium type of thing that it induces as you're just kind of trying to kind of keep your wits about you and, and maintain your bearings as that film kind of unfolds and kind of catches us up in this kind of swirl of time and memory. And and some of the same things are happening in Muriel, but it's a much more um, quotidian setting, just kind of a the a little life of a of kind of working class people in in this kind of uh, you know French you know oceanside city, very very middle class people uh, that doesn't have any of that kind of uh, I don't know, kind of refinement I guess that you saw in in Hiroshima Monomor and and uh, and last year at Marienbad. This this is a story about kind of identity and relationships and memories and failed aspirations um, that. You know, you you meet these characters early on. That's primarily a woman. Uh, she's a, a widow, uh, an antique dealer. She she lives in an apartment with her stepson, uh, the son of her her deceased husband, and she invites this man uh, that she's had a relationship with from years ago uh, over to her home, and he brings along with her a woman he identifies as his niece. And as the film goes on, you start recognizing that. The identities and the roles that these people play, and this and the backstories that they present, aren't exactly reliable or trustworthy, and you know, so there's a, just a lot of intrigue and a lot of mystery that's being unpacked here, and it's not really resolved in a really neat and tidy way either. And so, uh, my first my first encounter was uh, over this past weekend. And uh, I probably watched it a little bit later at night. I'd probably had a, a drink or two too many. <laughs> so I had to kind of go back to it and say, okay, what's going on here? What I mean, there there's some, some really brilliant cinematic stuff going on, some really striking editing shots, uh, some very interesting performances. But the way the plot congeals or maybe doesn't exactly all the way by the end said, okay, I'm going to have to go back and, and work on this one a little bit. So I gave it another kind of more clear-eyed viewing a little bit earlier in the evening, a little bit more focused, put my phone away, and just really tried to zero in on it. And I think I made some progress. But this is a film that, to me at least, feels like you have to sort of you know, live with it a little bit and, and let it do its work. I don't think it was as nearly as uh, commercially successful as the earlier films. This is Renee's third feature. And I think there was a bit of, you know, anticipation and, and, and uh, you know, maybe high hopes. And because it didn't have, doesn't, at least to me, doesn't seem to have that same exhilarating effect that his first two features did, I think that maybe left this one a little bit more in obscurity. I think I read somewhere that it only ran in New York City for like three nights on its original, um, you know, theatrical run. Uh, Bosley Crowther, the I I think he's a pretty great film critic for the New York Times at the in that era in the early '60s. Uh, he he kind of gave the review a kind of a pan review and didn't 
find it very accommodating. He found it very frustrating and annoying, I think are the words that he used. So this is a film that, that definitely has a mixed reputation, but the, you will find uh, reviewers out there who consider this to be Renee's greatest film. And I'm not sure I can go there quite yet, but I, I kind of get what they're saying because there's just a lot of density. There's a lot of uh, you know complexity going on here. So this is this this to me feels like a very literary film. Uh, the editing and the and the juxtaposition of of who's who, which character is speaking versus what you see on the screen at the time. There's a kind of a very unique musical soundtrack, kind of, kind of this operatic score that's apparently like written in German but sung in French, and the the lyrics are somewhat inaudible. And and purposely so, but there are lyrics, but they they're just not clearly enunciated. It creates more of a feeling or a sensation than a an actual kind of uh, cognitive meaning that's kind of delivered straight to you. So um, it's just a it's just a really intriguing work of kind of high modernism uh, from that kind of golden age of you know the early '60s when the the new wave and kind of the more uh, cerebral and intellectualized side of cinema was really kind of at its peak. And uh, it seems to me like Rene kind of took that whole approach to filmmaking uh, to a certain pinnacle here, uh, maybe to the point where he even left some of the audience behind that was eager for this type of film, but maybe had a hard time getting into it. So <laughs> those are my opening thoughts on it. This is, this is, a, this is a pretty uh, you know, complex film. I know, Scott, I think you've had some pretty good things to say about it, so maybe you can help me uh, unpack it a little bit more. Yeah, well, it's definitely a, a slippery film, kind of as, as you mentioned, with in terms of the editing, it's even more so than *Marion Bad*, which is kind of famously labyrinthian and confusing. This doesn't have that kind of uh, the, the tone, the music, the way the shots relate to each other aren't kind of as directly obvious, I think, um, or maybe even uh, present at all. Uh, and it's definitely getting into a mode of filmmaking that Renee, I think, would do much better in uh, like Je Tem Je Tem, which came a little later in the decade. Uh, but this is a film that I saw, man, 2009, I think, for the first time and then didn't see again until last fall when I just kind of watched on a whim over a long weekend. And I, it's like you, I, I couldn't really completely get with it the first time. I I definitely respected what was going on and was interested in a lot and there were bits that kind of stood out to me and grabbed me but i you know for a long time it was i kind of considered it lesser renee and i've seen all but two of his films and it kind of remained there even as i went through some i think more obviously flawed works uh but then revisiting it last fall just something about it something not that the story made so much more sense to me but it kind of did uh but i think renee's filmmaking and his the choices that went into it and kind of where he was coming from at the time were a little bit more apparent. I could get a little bit more on his wavelength and I was completely bowled over by it. Uh, I haven't had a chance to watch it completely through on the new Blu-ray, but uh, as someone who's lived through uh, two terrible DVD editions of this film before, I was pretty knocked out by the transfer. I know that there are some issues with the color grading, uh, but frankly, I think you can overcome them by just switching your TV to its warm setting, uh, which is what I did and uh, was pretty satisfied with the results but certainly in just in terms of clarity and depth and detail and all that kind of stuff i uh for those who are familiar with the film through its past releases and maybe have hesitated because some of the reviews are in some regards a little tepid or some of the fan reactions are a little tepid uh i think this is a remarkable step up and 
brings forward uh, the aesthetic qualities that at least in those like, old DVD releases were maybe less obvious. Yeah, I, I, I do enjoy some of the features that kind of, again, bring some of the um, the context to the forefront here. This is a film that was, uh, you know, directed and released shortly after the Algerian-French uh, War had concluded. And there is a lot of kind of political context that uh, some of the, uh, you know, that some of the commentators, some of the interviewees, um, really kind of do help to explicate because uh, Rene with his subtlety and, and Jean Carroll, who was actually the script writer and narrator for Night and Fog, he also worked pretty closely on this film. Um, they they didn't, you know, again, they just didn't spoon feed the audience. They didn't make their messages so obvious, but uninformed um, and, and, you know, attentive contemporary viewer would have picked up some of those things which probably just have to be brought more to our attention so i think you know the the supplemental features while they're not extensive uh, they're fairly brief all, you know, all of them together um they, they at least you know give you some pointers of what directions to go go in and i i really did appreciate uh, uh the the acting of delphine Seyrig, who's um you know, she was in last year at Marion Bad, and not exactly an ingenue in that. And but she's kind of more of almost like a model or a mannequin in that film, where she's just kind of posing. And she she talks in one of the uh, interviews that are quoted here about how she just kind of strolled around in her fabulous gowns in Marion Bad, and here she's a. You know, she's kind of a. She plays an older woman. She's kind of made up to look older. She's kind of kind of a a wig with a touch of gray in it. And, um, she's kind of a nervous, uh, housewife and entertainer and entrepreneur, a, a small business owner. And so she's, she's always doing things. She's, she's smoking, she's serving food. She's, she's cleaning up and tidying up and explaining things. And it's, it's an interesting, uh, preview, if you will, of her role as Jean Dillman, which would be somewhat, you know, 10, 12 years later, uh, the great Chantal Ackerman film. Uh, and you, and you really, you see little glimpses of her as she's in her kitchen <laughs> doing her domestic stuff. And it's like, Oh yeah, that's, that's Sean Dillman, you know? And, and, uh, so I, I did enjoy just kind of watching her and kind of getting into her performance. I've also been watching, uh, stolen kisses, the front, uh, uh, Francois Truffaut, uh, Antoine Duanel, one of the sequels in that series there, where she played a pretty significant role there. So I've been on a little bit of a, a Delphine Serig kick. So uh, this kind of fell into a nice little sequence there too. Yeah, and what a different era it was that a woman as beautiful as her on her third film at the age of, you know, just barely over 30, uh, willingly played a woman 10 years her senior. Yeah, <laughs> you, don't, yeah. uh, you don't see a lot of that these days. No, no. And, and and again, I just, I, I love this kind of filmmaking where it's really, uh, you know, you just sense a real respect for the audience, but also a willingness to say, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to make this necessarily a real easy film to get into. I'm going to load it with ideas. Uh, we're going to, you know, make it thematically complex and, and invite people to discover it. Um, and I just, you know, so many movies I see, even, 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 movies that i really kind of enjoy just you know these days just feel like they're pandering in some level and this one just doesn't feel like it it's like uh just very intelligent mature and entertainment for for adults for thinking people who uh don't don't mind being challenged and and maybe have to you know 
lean in a little bit to, to keep up with what's going on here. But uh, yeah, even even you know the aesthetics, the surface stuff is nice too. I mean, there's just interesting characters. Uh, there's a young man in the film who's kind of a, a home movie maker, and it just kind of brings you back to his little handheld camera and and uh, really working with film and splicing and editing and projecting his 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 works there and there's a little echo of uh, the young alan renee uh, himself uh, who kind of got his start doing the same thing you know I, was, I wish uh criterion would list the producers of the of the releases on their website in like the in somewhere in the credits to make it easier to see you know who which of the producers at the offices are kind of spearheading releases like this and kind of you, you know you could kind of follow who's doing what um just because they have such a like a curatorial role in that and uh i'm just curious you know it like for muriel um the the producer at criterion was uh jason altman and it's just like it's a name that i don't it doesn't ring a bell as far as like i've you know i don't remember what else he's done um but you know, I, I had, yeah, it's an you know, it's an interesting thought. Yeah, just to see what else has he done, and how how would you be able to thread those together? You have to kind of open up the cases and get into the liner notes yeah, and exactly. piece it together yourself, huh? Um, it's a good side project for someone to make a, a a website that lists all this. Yeah, add that, add the add another column to your spreadsheets, uh, and just start adding in the the producers as you come across them. Uh, maybe we'll sit Keith and right on that. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on to our final release of the month, the biggest release of the month, easily. Terrence Malick's The New World. This is one that has been teased at and been kind of uh, hoped for for years now, essentially, as Criterion has released the the Malick films on Blu-ray. This one, you know, inevitably the conversation turns to The New World. And, uh, you know, for a long time, we just had the extended edition on Blu-ray. And, uh, you know, we saw little teases in the wacky New Year's drawings over the years. And earlier this year, we had a glimpse into the the Criterion's restoration uh, of the New World, where they went and posted some video clips showing off the newly graded images and kind of confirmed exactly, you know, what we had all assumed for a long time is that Criterion was, was indeed working on this. And it's finally here when it was first announced it was uh you know we we were were all talking like what are they going to do as far as the other cuts of the film and they you know went above and beyond in releasing all uh, three different versions of it so one person that was pretty excited about this release coming was scott and scott how did this live up to your uh, expectations? Um, well, the good news is it's still my favorite film. Um, it has been almost since the time it came out uh, over 10 years ago. And uh, insofar as it's ridiculous to call any film the greatest film ever made, sure, why not? I will call this the greatest film ever made. I, and it took me a long time to kind of realize why it appealed to me so much beyond kind of the obvious stuff. It's obviously a very exceedingly ridiculously beautiful movie. and. Uh, just watching it on an aesthetic level alone, I am forever uh, kind of dismayed by the rather tepid and dismissive critical reaction at the time of its release. Um, and while I won't take too long to say I, I told you so to everyone at the time, uh, I, I did. And I'm glad that now everyone's kind of come around on it. Um, but the kind of central themes of driving it about around surrounding impermanence and kind of finding peace and happiness in unexpected places and to kind of 
live in a way that acknowledges the past while still being able to live for the present, uh, I think is a central concern in so much of Malik's work. And I think kind of finds uh, a really total realization here uh, for those who don't know. And honestly, I sometimes forget that this is uh, really the story of John Smith and Pocahontas, or at least a version thereof. They kind of talk in some of the supplements about uh, the various kind of historical uh, debates that go on about what really happened, you know, in Jamestown in the early 1600s. Um, but this is more meditation on the idea and the legacy of that story and kind of uh, what it says and it says so much about, and I think that's why it's lasted so long is it just says so much about uh, the nation as a whole and it's uh, unfortunate and very uh, messy beginnings. Um, you know, Malik certainly at the time and, I think to a certain extent ever since has kind of been accused of doing kind of the noble savage thing of just holding up the native populations as uh, this unimpeachable way of life. And, you know, they're perfectly in tune with nature. Um, But I think as the release does a good job of demonstrating, this was kind of how a lot of settlers felt about the native populations. And, but I don't think Malik is content to leave it there either. You know, he does a lot to complicate our understanding of the natives from the fact that they cast out Pocahontas and then, I think especially by the time uh, we get to England at the end of the film, it's its own kind of wonder. You know, Malik is not Malik is definitely infatuated with nature, but he's infatuated, I think, more so with spaces. And uh, as much as, you know, we look at the Jamestown kind of civilization that they're trying to establish and it seems a rather pitiful attempt when you get to England, you realize what they're attempting for and how much beauty can come from a man-made space, these grand halls and these kind of carefully manicured lawns and it's this and a whole other wonder you know pocahontas right, rightly calls it the new world uh and because it is to her the new world and the title in that way has this kind of multifaceted uh meanings and also that kind of treatment of nature just feeds into mal's common theme of a, a lost eden constant search to regain happiness how even if you know you recognize it when it happens that's not enough to retain it you know there's so many life forces that are constantly pulling at us in so many different directions and not just outer forces, you know, it's our own inner drives for ambition or success or, you know, some kind of greatness that distracts us from, you know, holding on to whatever peace and happiness we can find. Uh, and, you know, there are a lot of kind of universal human themes that one can explore in a film, but to me, that is as essential to the human experience as you could possibly get. And uh, I think Malik really, exceedingly achieves this greatly and every time i watch this film you know i've seen this three-hour cut probably three or four times maybe even five and you know it's it's definitely a long film you don't not feel its length but by the end i'm just so overwhelmed and often in tears and just uh just so deeply moved by it and i was really uh of course ecstatic that criterion took this up and did so well by it and releasing these three cuts and prominently releasing the the long cut as the primary cut, which, you know, for a long time, the extended cut, you don't really know what that means. It could just be like some something they abandoned halfway through production before kind of cutting it down. But I was glad to find that Malik too prefers this cut. Um, and I don't know if you guys read kind of the booklet info about that cut, but they did this really massive restoration project on it of kind of rescanning all the individual elements and almost kind of re-editing the film uh, because so many of the original elements had been kind of cut up and dispersed in so many different ways that they and they didn't want to just use kind of the scan that warner's created uh for its own blu-ray release of this which i'm very grateful for because this looks outstanding on blu-ray 
Um, and all their efforts are have really paid off. You know, I, I kind of mourn the days when Criterion did this kind of treatment for every film when they restored it and scanned it themselves. Uh, they had a real kind of, for a while, kind of authorial touch. You could tell Lee Klein's preferences as far as kind of depth and certainly color. Uh, and so to see that again, kind of in action, see them put in this much effort to like, what is again to me, one of the most important films ever released, uh, was incredibly gratifying and I, I couldn't be happier with everything about it. I'm, I'm sure a few of you guys have had a chance to at least check this out and maybe even watch the whole thing. Uh, I would love to hear your thoughts if so. Well, uh, I definitely had a chance to watch it and, uh, I haven't had a chance to go through, all, I, and compare the different cuts of the films, uh, but I did go back and rewatch the movie itself. And um, like you said, the, this new restoration that they put together is just gorgeous. I mean, it really pops uh, on the screen. Um, the you know the the audio tracks are are fantastic. Uh, I had fun also just going back and rewatching that. The, the making of the new world, the documentary that they shot, yes. which I think was included on the older Blu-ray. I also uh, really appreciated like the all of the artwork that they included in the booklet, uh, all of the stuff that you know they, all the paintings that they included that uh, that were used as inspiration for the the making of the film. Yeah, um, I mean the supplements all around. I think they do a really good job with their Malik releases. They kind of give us a critical essay to kind of think about some of the themes and style of the film, but they really focus on the production elements too in all the interviews and stuff, which are fascinating for Malik films because it's all these people kind of bending over backwards to make his kind of ridiculous, uh, you know, half demands and half just kind of whims uh, possible. And yeah, I love in that making of documentary that you see the people like running around and moving cables to try to make room for the actors. And you realize like how much work, but according to most of the people involved, how much fun it must've been to go through. It's, it's funny to watch the the trailers. It's always funny to watch Malik trailers yeah. <laughs> uh, just because they're always so um, misleading. Um, you know, they, the people cutting the trailers often have to try to sell these movies to the to an audience that is inevitably going to like feel like they're they're going into something completely different. Uh, you know, they they try to make this like the traditional Pocahontas story in the trailers. But then once you get into the actual movie, you realize that it's a completely different way of telling it. Well, and but they also still put Terrence Malick's name so prominently, but it kind yeah. of tells you it's like, don't worry, guys, we made him settle down. You'll still get the beauty, but maybe you'll understand this one. Yeah. It wasn't until kind of, I think, the Tree of Life that they started to kind of sell it straight. I don't know. I feel like even the Tree of Life, those trailers tell you, they make it seem like there's a story that you're going to see that you eventually, that you inevitably don't get uh, when you watch <laughs> the movie itself. Maybe. Um, but yeah, the interviews with uh, the actors are, are good. I think Colin Farrell is really like kind of the greatest reflection of Malik's soul that we've seen on screen. Uh, I really, the interview with the editors is a laugh riot. Uh, those guys are so loose and do not care about upsetting anybody involved in the production and uh, really just let it fly. And it's a lot of fun. Um, the 150 minute first cut of the film. Um, had you seen that one before? I actually still haven't seen it. I, okay. was, I was hoping to watch it today, but I got off work too late. Okay. I'm just curious, like what that has in it that, you know, they removed from, you know, when it was released theatrically, and maybe wasn't like if there's anything in there that's not in that extended cut that you know that they just cut out and realized like we don't really need this stuff in any of any of the versions of it 
Yeah, my understanding is there are at least slight differences between all of them. Um, and Criterion has a supplement about the different versions that I didn't, unfortunately, find terribly uh, informative to that end. I uh, just kind of gave kind of a broad overview and some hyper-specific examples that weren't uh, as telling as one might hope. Uh, I was uh, kind of disappointed in the uh, visual quality of those other two cuts. I at least popped them in and kind of check them out, and it's definitely a, a step down from the restoration. I thought at least with kind of high-definition transfer that it would be, well, you know, decently impressive, but it kind of just looks like an upscale DVD, mm. uh, which is too bad. But, you know, the 3 hour cut is the one that counts, and that's the one that looks so good. Yeah. Uh, the the cover art that they came up with from Robert Hunt, uh, very beautiful, I think. Um, although I'm not like crazy about the painting of her on the inside when you pull it out, but um, I think that cover art on the slipcase looks great. Yeah, I would largely agree with that. And two, it seems like they probably because it almost seems like a wraparound image on the interior kind of digipack part uh-huh. uh that is then cut off by the spine so it's a little yeah awkward but yeah I, I absolutely adore the cover art well as we mentioned before a lot of people uh didn't get this uh in time and so you know hopefully um but you know i guess that's a good sign in that there were a lot of people out there trying to get it so this this i'd imagine is going to be one of the more popular criterion releases uh of the summer and you know i'm sure this will end up on some best of the year lists uh, at the end of the year this year. It's proving a competitive year. I got to say, I'm, I'm really impressed with what Criterion's dished out. And this is yet another uh, reason to celebrate. I have a question now. Does Terrence Malick, I mean, you know, he was almost reclusive for a long time and maybe still is, but you know, on most of the director approved editions for directors who are still alive, you get their autograph facsimile on the sticker, but that was not the case in this one. It just says director approved, but he doesn't, give you the old uh you know uh, autograph on there did anybody else yeah. notice that i i did notice that and couldn't help but chuckle to myself because of <laughs> how i mean terrence malick isn't like a, a recluse exactly he goes out in public and he goes dancing and you know i he, think there were i wonder years where like there were no photographs of him and he was yes, just he is off in control- the off in the mountains somewhere. <laughs> yeah, for a while, everyone was using this one stock photo of him kind of smiling <laughs> goofily while at yeah. the camera mount. Uh, and Malik fans like myself often kind of jokingly refer to that as like the one Malik image that is always used in press releases about him. Uh, you know, in your sense, he's kind of calmed down about that. And, you know, you see kind of Malik fans kind of capturing video of him on the street. And there's some TMZ video out there where they were like assaulting Christian Bale on the street and didn't realize that Terrence Malick was just standing next to him the whole time. Um, so he's not kind of as fanatical about that as he used to be, but I still think his uh, impulses to retreat from any uh, public profile, including his signature, you know, I, maybe he's afraid someone will steal it. I don't know, but I mean, in the, the making of the new world, that documentary, uh, you don't see him at all nope, like it's, it's, it's amazing to watch how many sequences they sh- they recorded you know for the documentary and like you try to look you try to find him in that image anywhere and like i couldn't find him in some some most of those images uh his back is briefly visible in his new film light of cups if you want to see what he looks like from behind <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of his more recent films do you think that criterion's gonna kind of just keep rolling out i mean I, I could see them doing tree of life but what about his more recent like to the wonder or knight of cups do you think those are gonna warrant eventual criterion releases uh 
they it's possible i mean yeah. i don't think magnolia has lent any of their stuff to criterion yet uh but that doesn't mean they it wouldn't especially since uh allegedly malik you know kind of one can draw the conclusion that he kind of broke the warner brothers ban because badlands was kind of their fir- first title out from that uh and warner brothers kind of let it be known at the time that you know in cases where directors really make a case for it they'll kind of let some titles sneak out and so one gathers that terrence malick is very happy with the work criterion has been doing for his films and hopefully he could at least encourage fox searchlight which has lent titles out to criterion before he can encourage them to do the same and keep going from there it's amazing that this so this was his fourth movie. Like he'd only done three yeah, films before that. And now since then in the, you know, in the years since we got tree of life, we now have, you know, like tree of life to the wonder night of cups, uh, you know, this other movie the journey we, through time is yeah, voyage like that? of time. Yeah. Or yeah. Voyage of time. Right. So it's, it's like, he's like, you know, uh, doubled his efforts in the, in the, just a handful of years, uh, you know, since I guess rejoining the spotlight with tree of life. But, um, I mean, it's it's so crazy to think that, like, you know, before the New World, like, it was just, you know, Thin Red Line, Days of Heaven, Badlands. Like, that's it's just amazing. Yeah, until Voyage of Time comes out later this fall, uh, the New World is the exact midpoint of his career. <laughs> and it was only, you know, 11 years ago. Yeah. Like King Who, long, long, long break. Because he went from, like, yeah. 78 to 98 between uh, Days of Heaven and uh, Thin Red Line. Yeah. yeah. George Lucas had him a slightly beat in the directing break, but... <laughs> Not quite. Not as by much. Yeah. Well, guys, do you have any any final thoughts for the month? Anything you want to uh, talk about before we start wrapping things up for the night? Uh, it's too bad that uh, the in-laws and uh, what do you call it? Carnival Souls don't make a better double feature because I think Touch of Zen and The New World go very well together. And of course, the Alain Rene films do as well. So we, we could have had a month of double features, but not quite. <laughs> yeah, almost. <laughs> That's a weird double feature. <laughs> <laughs> Well, guys, thanks so much for joining me tonight to talk about these releases. Listeners, thanks for downloading the show. We'll be back this time next month to talk about the August titles. So we'll see you then.